have an awesome interview with Trevor Francis, founder and CEO of 46 Labs. Uh, he's got a super cool background helping folks get internet connectivity in Central America, South America, West Africa, and now his company, 46 Labs, focuses on that in the United States. We talk about his company, we talk about being a pilot, and uh, so many other fun things. You guys will love this conversation. Thanks, y'all. Take care. Yeah, national national's awesome. I think you know Austin. Austin is interesting. I actually, I think the food is a little bit like better in Austin compared to Nashville, for my personal tastes. But I think in terms of live music, in terms of, um, I think just like the natural geography of Tennessee, you know, mountains and valleys and and really the lush areas like farmland. Even if you like gardening, it's great. So. Yeah, Tennessee's awesome. It's a lot greener than Austin is, for sure. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Although, they have that cool river, like, right in the middle of the city. They do. Yeah. Have you gone kayaking down that? Surely you have when you move. Yeah, I have. So I used to, yeah, as a, our family, we used to kind of walk along the along river. And, you know, Austin's changed quite a bit uh, since we've lived there. But um, it's uh, it's still a great place. It's in a, you know. It's in a great state, and, and um, you know we're we're headquartered in Dallas, so I have to say that you know Texas is a fantastic place to do business, as you know as Tennessee is as well. So two pretty hot, hot places. Texas and Florida are pretty prime for sure. They are. Te- I mean, ten- Tennessee is great. I think it's it's interesting. I mean, we're like kind of equidistant, you know, from both. And I think um, with you know the pandemic, it seemed like most of the southeast got like a huge lift in population it did and well so we we moved here um to be around family um kind of take care of and and um uh we uh we moved from florida actually just like kind of everybody else though um and uh yeah it's that the southeast has done really well tennessee's done fantastic um you know nashville's great because it has you know it has all the seasons where you don't really have that in Texas or Florida. Yeah, you get to plant some interesting veggies and fruit. Um, you know, so I have some grapes in just in my front yard, and it's funny. One of our board members is making fun of me. He's like, "I don't know if Tennessee's made for wine, uh, but we'll see." I'm optimistic. Oh, well, you can grow this... wine everywhere. That's that's funny. Yeah, <laughs> that's damn true. So I'm curious about your background. So okay, so you lived in. Um, Texas and and the company's headquartered there uh, in Florida as well. Maybe you just kind of walk us through like your career arc and kind of how you ended up um, in Oklahoma. Sure. So uh, this is this is the third time I've returned to Oklahoma. Actually, so um, I uh, I was born in Florida, raised in in, in Dallas, and um, uh, got a scholarship to go to school in, in Oklahoma. So I took that. Um, so I didn't have to burden my parents with, you know, huge amounts of student loans or myself for that matter. <clears throat> and, um, actually ended up dropping out of, uh, of that university to, to found a company and, um, did, did fairly well with that company. It was a consulting firm, um, ended up transferring to, uh, a school in Boston, lived in Boston for a little bit. And, um, so Florida, Boston, uh, we lived in Boulder for a little bit. So we, we kind of, we've, uh, we've been digital nomads cases trying out different cities and and um and different lifestyles so it's been a lot of fun 
That's cool. It's a modest way to yeah. say you went to Harvard. That's cool. Oh, uh, well, <laughs> you don't normally say that. <laughs> it's the first thing they teach you to not say. So, uh, yeah. Interesting. So you dropped out of undergrad initially. Um, was it, were you just kind of compelled to start a business? Like what was the thinking? I was bored. Yeah, I, I was bored. I think that's probably the easiest way to say it. You know, I, I had started, I had started something in college and, um, and, and kind of got bored with the course load. So I, I figured I'd give that a shot. Ultimately, my goal in college was to go out and find a job, but I kind of created a job and kind of the rest is history. Do you have kids? I do. I have, uh, I have, uh, uh, two boys. So a nine year old and a 12 year old. Okay. What's your opinion on them going to college? That's a good question. So we, we talked about that a lot. Both my parents went to college, but they didn't, they didn't go to, you know, like huge, huge schools, like not, not Ivy league schools. Um, and, yep. um, you know, uh, my wife went to college where now we, we, uh, we, we're, we're very pro college. Um, you know, I think college is changing. I mean, it's changing a lot actually, even as, as, uh, uh, recent as last week, right? With, um, yes. you know, with, with the, the Supreme court decision. So, you know, and we homeschool, so we're, you know, I, uh, uh, both our, our boys have always been homeschooled. So it's, um, we, we have a probably a non-traditional view of education, but at the end of the day, um, you know, we want a place for them to continue learning how to learn. And, um, I think that's a, that's a, it's a big thing that, um, maybe college has, has lost sight of. Um, certain colleges, maybe not all colleges, but um, certain colleges have lost sight of that. And uh, hopefully it returns. Um, you know, I, I have very positive things to say about both the universities I attended. So I, um, you know, but, you know, they're, they're no place is perfect, right? And uh, I think college is certainly a, um, I don't think you have to graduate necessarily, but I think that it's a good experience for anybody if you can afford to do it. Yeah, totally. I, I'm always like fascinated by, like the sort of learning and education that you receive, like building a company, not just about like how the world works, but how to think. And I wish you could like bottle that in a way and just give it to people. I'm, I'm a recovering engineer. So, um, the whole emotional intelligence thing <laughs> that comes with, with, with operating a company and being a boss is, um, that's a daily pursuit. Right. And, um, you know, that, that, culture changes and it's certainly changed even through, you know, my tenure here at 46 labs, um, quite a bit in the last 10 years. So, um, we've seen huge, just huge, just huge change, both with, you know, being able to recruit, retain talents and, and, um, just, you know, what, what folks expect, um, today versus what they expected, you know, when we, when I started, started the company. So, um, yes, um, bottling it up, it, you can't, there's not enough you know, legal pads here that I can use to kind of write down all, all of the, uh, the lessons you learn on a daily basis. So, um, yeah, I, I, I agree. It's not that you can't be, this is a, this is a completely different type of education. So do you think you'll encourage your children to, to be entrepreneurs and to start companies? You know, I think that it's all for everybody, right? So, um, you know, I, I would encourage them to do whatever they're passionate about. My nine-year-old, wants to be a concert pianist. He wants to play in Carnegie Hall and that's his, his, his goal in life. Right. So, you know, does he want to have to make all the difficult decisions you have to make as a boss and owning a company and running out of money? Um, yeah, no, I don't know if that's for everybody. Right. So it's, um, you know, it's, it, it's not for the faint of heart. Um, but there are some of us who are kind of built this way and, and, um, uh, you know, yeah, would be bored otherwise. So that's, uh, 
Yeah, that's true. That that's a good point. Encourage that. Yes, I think we definitely encourage them to 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 go whatever direction they want to go. So okay, so forty six laps. How did you kind of start the business? Um, was there like an aha moment or? Yeah, just give us some background on your company. Well, so kind of come out of the international space. So I, um, once I, I did my whole college thing, I, I went um, and, and started founding companies um, that, that focused on solving international problems. I've always done digital infrastructure for the most part and um, kind of back to the um, not wanting to be bored. Um, I started in developing countries. So in, in West Africa and Central America and places like all right, so um, I uh, wow. I recognized that there was there were a lot of the challenges that we were solving for these out of incumbent operators in these countries um, that were very relevant to the to uh, you know domestic companies or even companies that had more resources than a lot of these, these these companies did. So I you know when I when I founded the company, it was kind of a core principle. First, you know, first principle was you know how can we help folks do more. I mean, many years ago, this is like over like a decade ago, but I lived in China and Shanghai and, wow. um, you know, there's a certain, yeah, it's a, there's a certain, I don't know, like personality type of like an expatriate, you know, and the type of things that expats are into and the type of risks that we take, um, professionally, you know, um, so that sure. really resonates with me. So that's awesome. So what were some of the problems that you saw in terms of just maybe broad, broad brush connectivity problems for um, these folks in developing countries? Most of my work was done in Central America and Africa. Um, so you had, um, you know, you had historically populations that didn't have a huge amount of income, right? And which when, when you have that, it drives the businesses that support them, right? So, you know, if you have a dollar to invest that you're getting from your customer, um, you know, there's you have to turn a profit from that, right? And um, and they they uh, they had a lot of uh, the operators that we worked with had a lot of challenges with kind of understanding how to make the most of, of their networks and you know um, both reach their customers better um, in a more resilient way and then also interconnect to the rest of the world in a more resilient way. So the problems that I um, historically solved were around. Kind of those core tenets, you know. Um, in Central America, um, my focus was in rural areas, um, specifically Honduras. And uh, Honduras is, it's a little bit. I mean, I guess it's a little bit like Tennessee in the case of there's a lot of hills and there's a lot of trees. And um, granted, yeah. more rainforest focused, but um, you struggle with that when you're trying to trench and lay fiber, right, or trench and do copper. So they solved or attempted to solve that using. Um, kind of the precursor to cellular networks um, that were for CDMA radio phones. I helped kind of improve how um, rural areas of Columbia were able to connect to the rest of the world. So that's where, you know, that's kind of where I, I started. Did that in Columbia as well. Um, I definitely hung off the side of multiple towers um, wow. you know, in, in the rainforest and the jungles. So that was, uh, you know, not for the faint of heart for sure. Um, if we had, you know, the same exact same issues happen. West Africa, except um, not not quite as as um, uh, densely forested, but um, certainly um, a, a very um, unique demographic uh, people consuming telecom. What's like the business climate? I mean, let's just take for example Colombia, because probably it varies from Colombia to parts of West Africa. Like, what 
who who are the different like stakeholders if you're laying down like pipe in in Colombia? Like you have government, private enterprise, the rural constituents. Like how does that's right. So, I mean, most of these these countries kind of operate in this kind of, uh, well, in, in West Africa, most of them were government-run uh, entities, and then kind of over yeah. time, they shifted, they were privatized. And for the most part, most developing countries are that way. They um, A lot of them still kind of operate as this quasi-public-private um, type of entity in right. the country. So, um, you know, what, what and, and specifically in Colombia, where I got involved this there was huge amounts of copper. Um, this is during the, the great, you know, uh, GFC, um, and um, people were going up and taking these giant bundles of copper and chopping them down. These salt lines, these huge felt lines, because they could strip the wires and use the, sell the copper basically black market. So huge sections of Colombia were essentially going offline because people were stealing the copper, right? And they'd steal the copper out. Yeah, it was just crazy, right? So people would get electrocuted doing it. It was a really, really bad deal, right? So we had to Boy. figure out, okay, when you've got huge swaths of populations going offline, um, how do you get them back online, right? So, and, you know, doing so wirelessly and, and whatnot. So it's, uh, you know, you still have that. You, you have that today, even today still happening in places like Nigeria where folks are, are taking transformers, um, you know, like electric transformers, and ripping them out of the ground and using the oil and the transformers to cook food. So um, it's really not right, right? So, you know, figuring out how to build resilient infrastructures that, you know, stood up to that level of, of um, well, that culture that exists there, right? That's, that's insane. I mean, so I remember in China, like people yeah. would, if you go to a cheap food vendor, they probably got the oil from the sewer at some point. Yeah. Like that's a, thing in China, you just cook the oil, you get all this stuff out. I mean, that's so interesting. So, okay. So does that like improve over time? Like theoretically, as an economy develops, they're like not taking that transformers to get the oil or is that just that thing? That's a risk management thing that's there. Well, it's really funny, right? So, I mean, I, I, if you look at, if you look at, at Africa as a, and obviously it's a massive continent, so trying to generalize it, but look, working in the places that I've worked, um, you may not necessarily have power at your home, but everybody has a cell phone, right? So communications at the end of the day is is the lifeblood for these folks. And right. in general, I think the tide has shifted a little bit because people don't want to lose access to TikTok or to whatever, right? Or to be able to call their, you know, their their mother or whatever, right? That 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 trumps having, you know, um, you know, reliable power in their house, right? So it's it's yeah. uh uh, but that's the culture there. Now. Yeah, there's this one dude on TikTok that I see. He's he's somewhere in Africa, and he's got like a sick cave or something with like all this electronics and like a sick car. And people are like, "Is this real? Like, how do you have all this stuff?" Um, anyways, I I'm that's so funny. So like the social media addiction is like permeating parts of the developing world, and that's what's that's creating. That's right. Yeah. And and people That's... still talk on the phones, right? I mean, it's at the end of the day, it's still, you know, probably the most efficient form of communication. You can take it everywhere with you. So, um, you know, obviously we're very bullish on communications and on, on, on connectivity in general, um, being that that's our business, but you know, you, you remove that and, 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 um, and the world goes back to the century. So were you already kind of like, did you already start 46 labs? before going to 
um, Central America, South America, West Africa, or? So 46 Labs is kind of my re-entry back into the United States, right? So, um, you know, after learning a lot of lessons um, internationally and um, having some really great success and some not so great success, um, I, I realized that, that, that the same challenges were being faced here in the States, but with bigger budgets and, um, frankly, bigger, bigger problems to solve because you had more, you know, more people who were consuming, um, you know, greater quantities of connectivity. So both on the business side and on the, on the consumer side. So, so when did you decide to kind of move back to the U S and start 46 labs? Was that like at the same time or did you kind of start your family and then we're like, Hey, this is probably a better opportunity here. Yeah. I started, I started my family. Um, we had, um, you know, I, I founded the company essentially, um, right. Let me think about that. My wife will probably get angry with me if I actually get the date wrong, but, uh, um, you know, um, essentially a year ish after, um, our, our first son was born. So, um, you know, at some point being a parent is, is uh, Trump's other things, right? You have to, you know, you have to make, you know, decisions, right? And and prioritize your life. So that's, uh, you know, not saying that it wasn't the right decision, and that was that precipitated it. You know, sort, you know, the need precipitated it. Um, that's just kind of how how this string of events came together. Do you miss kind of being like, sort of in the developing world and all of the, the risk and chaos that comes with it? or are you like settled and happy we also kids right so it's just a different version of chaos and uh and you know um and craziness right so we're, we're a fairly nomadic family so it's uh you know i think that's probably born out of um you know a, a mutual um shared boredom that my wife and i have and and our kids have figured out how to you know how to how to jive with that right we uh I guess two years ago, we, we traveled the country in an airstream and, um, you know, they got to see some things That's that cool. I certainly never got to see growing up in a, you know, in a master plan community with a, you know, both parents worked and, you know, there's, but there wasn't time to do that. Right. So it's, uh, we've, we've kind of designed this unique life. that's probably not for everybody, but that's cool. What was like your favorite place that you saw that you didn't see kind of growing up? Uh, well, the west right um you know we i grew up in texas and we we uh we basically stopped at colorado that was as far as you would go right um you know it wasn't until much later that i got to go to california and places like that Uh, i really love probably probably the greatest state from a nature perspective is montana so we uh you know everybody we've we've you know in our family just gushes over montana It's, it's just it's just gorgeous so that's amazing. Yeah. I mean, through the pandemic, we were making our way through, like we hit Colorado, Utah, and going to Jackson Hole in two weeks, first time to Wyoming. Very pumped about that. Uh, Jackson's haven't yet awesome. made it to Montana. Yeah. yeah. Do you like Jackson? Jackson's great. It was super. We did the same thing. It was during the pandemic. Yeah. You know, it was, uh, yep. it was still pretty, you know, pretty open, right? The rest of the West pretty much wasn't but at that time but um but jackson was open and um and it was busy right because everybody was doing the same thing we were doing right <laughs> so it was like i've got to get out of here and i need to you know i i've got to i want to see this is a good time to see things so um and i think it was great for for american generals because there wasn't that catalyst that caused people to like explore right um 
Yeah, it used to be you explore kind of your neighborhood bar. That was as far as you explored, right? And uh, and then you know, but now it kind of drove people to uh, you know to see the world, I guess. Oh, totally. And there's so much natural wonder in 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 our country and in North America in general, you know. And I think it gets overlooked for like the European vacation or the Asian, you know, trip or something. But like, yeah, especially I mean, west probably of Illinois. And like east of, I mean, really east of, I guess the Pacific is like so much beauty. And I think like the national park system came up with the permitting system because of the volume of national park visitors. Like all these top trails now have lottery permits that you have to win to be able to hike. So you do. It's yeah, uh, it's yeah, it, and it's a lot. And it's for I would have never had it not been for the pandemic, I would have never explored the part of the country that you're in. There's never a reason for me to be yeah. in Tennessee or North Carolina where Angela's from. They are hands down, especially the Blue Ridge Mountains in the area, kind of in southeast part of, um, or sorry, southwest part of, of um, North Carolina and all the way up to Severville and all that. And, and, and Tennessee, it's just, it's it's unbelievable. And the waterfalls and all the things that you would you would expect to see in Costa Rica and in, and and, you know, Hawaii, they're there. Right. And uh, you would just never, you would never assemble it. I think actually East Tennessee and like parts of North Carolina, it has the most like density of reptiles. That's what I remember seeing of any part of the world, like all types of lizards and all that stuff. Um, so yeah, it's, it's beautiful. And I wish that I had grown up seeing some of this stuff, you know, cause you're just kind of, I like you know, my parents, they're immigrants. It's like, we don't really go out to nature. You just kind of like study sure. it, go to bed, and you do it. That's next <laughs> <day>. <laughs> yeah. Well, now I trust me. I, I I completely understand. I think in general, it makes it, nature makes people better humans, and um, I think that it would. Um, obviously, I'm super privileged to be able to say that I've been able to do this, right? But I think you know, it's I'm in Oklahoma, right? It's not a place known for nature, right? Um, but it's it's everywhere if you look for it. So um, I I think. Everybody should be encouraged to go outside. Oh, totally. Even if it's 103 degrees out. So, <laughs> the part in my ignorance is it basically just kind of flat plains where where you are, or is it farmland? You know, yeah, it's a good question. So it's both, right? So Oklahoma, as you kind of divided it right down the center, and you go west, it's nothing, right? And I I, I, say, I hate to say that, um, it, it's there's some really neat places, right? But as far as from a topo- topography standpoint, it's very flat. Um, it's very windy. And um, yeah, there's a lot of farmland. Um, and you keep taking it west through New Mexico and it all somewhat looks the same, right? You you go to the essentially the right half, the eastern half of the state. And there's, it's green and there's trees. Um, and as you get closer to Arkansas, there becomes more hills and things like that. So it's, uh, it's a fairly diverse um, state. To what extent does like the topography of of a given region affect connectivity? Like, how does it work? Like for satellites and and like GPS on your Apple Watch? It doesn't. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't. You know, from a from a connectivity standpoint, it's a lot easier to beam um, a connection through a brick wall than it is to do it through a tree. So, um, and most people don't really you know kind of understand that. 
from a um, you know either line of sight and online of sight basis, right? So you're either consuming connectivity that's dug through the ground, right? So if there's any rock in the mountains or hills or anything like that, it makes it ten times as hard and ten times as expensive to do it, right? Um, if you're doing line of sight, so if you have let's say a wireless antenna on your roof and you're pointing it towards an ISP that is providing internet service, you have to have line of sight or near line of sight, otherwise it doesn't work, right? And then you have cellular carriers, you're going 5G and 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 whatnot, um, which is a huge deal. I'm talking to you over 5G right now. So it's um there's uh it's come a long way. Um and I also have a Starlink on, on my roof. So um case you this doesn't work. So there's a lot, obviously there's a lot of options that have that have kind of come about in the last couple of years that have somewhat democratized an activity that makes that flattens all of that topography and makes it um you know, more accessible for, you know, for real Americans, I guess, or we're, we're people globally, right? With Starlink, you can be rolling around in, on, you know, on a bike for you, uh, carrying it, but you could be on a, a boat in the middle of the ocean and still have great, you know, internet connectivity. And that wasn't possible um, really for Starlink. What do you think the future of like, a connectivity is i mean do you think that everybody i mean i guess so everybody in the world will have a software and be connected to the internet yeah you've got i mean there's there's huge swaths of the united states that you can't get connectivity at right now so and it's surprising you hear the, the advertisements about um mobile operators having 99 percent coverage and you know of, of of the population right but that's kind of a it's a it's a deceiving figure because when you are at a campground and you know, um, and and we're in Montana or you're in North Dakota or South Dakota, or you're in these huge swaths of land where there's not a huge population center, but there is people who live out there, very much underserved um, from a connectivity perspective. So, um, you know, you've got you've got the government currently right now, which is investing billions and billions of dollars in infrastructure. Um, funding to be able to get gain access for five specifically fiber for the most part to a lot of those towns um and and kind of the rest is it's is picked up from 5g and and uh low earth orbit connectivity solutions like starling what's happening like when you go to the smokies and you're like on a trail and you're not getting any service and you have to use like one of these garmin sat phones if you get stalkers like why is my cell phone not well it's good it's a good question so um so cell phones in general and cell phone towers are just waves right um they're they're beamed in in specific sectors or directions right and if there's not coverage there from a from an operator you can't that it doesn't it doesn't get invented you know it it has to be pointed somewhere right you have to have access to uh um to to that right so if you're on the back side of a mountain pretty much camping self sell right through the mountain it just doesn't work that way and these are all microwaves right so they're well for the most part microwaves or waves but you know the hang you have to gain access to it right so when you are on a trail in the smokies and you can't you know you're not you're not able to get it um satellite and 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 unless you're carrying a, a starlink with you that's pretty much the only you know option you have and you have to have a full view of the of the uh starlink you have to have a full view of the sky which is you know as you know and most places in the east is almost impossible because of the trees right yes they are a beautiful nuisance sometimes so i guess you need to have visibility of a cell tower basically or a clear line of sight to one for the cell phone to work on 
on a mountain or I'm not understanding that. Properly. Yeah, that's right. I mean, yeah, that's why you see cell towers perched on the, you know, on the top of mountains. Um, they can cover and get huge coverage slots by doing that, right? They're not pretty to look at. They're necessary if you're, if you want to serve people in those areas. Gotcha. Just as an example, like you ascend to the top of pick a mountain in Colorado and like there's a lot of exposure, there's no tree line, but you're also not getting service there. Is that a cell coverage issue or is that? Just- it is. When they're, when they're building out their cell networks, they're actually pointing their antennas downward, not upward. Gotcha. Okay. So even if you have line of sight, it's not able to hit the actual tower. You'd have to just have like a Starlink basically to get internet. Okay. Yeah. Everything. It's like, think about like drawing a line between the cell tower and where you are, right? If you can't see the cell tower, it can't see you. And, um, and obviously for, for mobile, that's how it works. Like in terms of opportunity, is there, is there like a commercial opportunity then like around national parks and around like these areas that are not like, I guess, um, dense in terms of residential population? Yeah, I think so. I think that, you know, certainly it's an underserved market, um, you know, the consumer in that, um, you know, in that space isn't super excited about getting a, a separate service just you know, to wander on the trail, right? So, you know, at the end of the day, you have to be economically viable, otherwise you won't survive. So, um, you know, Yellowstone was a good example, um, especially we went to Yellowstone, obviously during during COVID as well. And um, when you've got as many people who are going into Yellowstone, um, you know, that that the base equipment, even for the cell providers that are there, um, just isn't big enough to handle that that level of, of you know of connectivity, right? They, they engineer them, dimension them for anticipated loads, kind of like stadiums, right? Um, but you know, if they happen to have 10 times the amount of people there on a normal time, you know, you're just, you're not able to, uh, to handle that. So I think that, you know, certainly getting access to connectivity, um, in general, the, the wireless providers, the fiber providers and, the um, and, and Starlink, um, are, are, are doing a lot to be able to gain access to connectivity for, for everybody, not, not just here in the States, but, but, you know, globally, um, which kind of creates this other issue, which is kind of, how do you manage all of that? Cause it's, it's pretty sizable when you're, you're now kind of extending, um, the total reachable audience for, for this, this connectivity stuff. And how do you, you know, how do you manage that as a service provider? How do you consume that as a, as a business? Right. There's a whole lot of things you don't necessarily think about anymore, or you, or sorry, you didn't think about before, but you have to think about now. What What are some of like the market opportunities maybe in the U.S. just around underserved communities um, for connectivity that you guys see in front of you? They're they're kind of being gobbled up on a, on you know on a weekly basis right now with with the amount of funding that's you know the the, the tens of billions of dollars that are going from the infrastructure bill um, that was passed into private corporations to build fiber uh, networks, you're, you're getting, you're getting the right type of attention, um, from private industry because you're, you know, you're get you're backing it with public dollars to be able to extend that reach. So, um, there, that, that space is extremely hot right now. Um, both from, from raising, you know, raising money. Um, it's, it's, it's fairly easy to raise money for that right now. Whereas the rest of, Startup land is not easy to raise money right now from an equity perspective. 
Um, but they're able, you know, you're getting, you're getting, um, you know, you're getting a lot of attention from, from, you know, private equity firms from VC firms, um, and from kind of vendor financing opportunities because they know that, you know, essentially the, their, their investment is de-risked by, um, the U S government kind of ponying up a majority of the cash to do this work. So it'd be like taking a community that maybe does not have fiber access and putting really? fiber down. Okay. Gotcha. That's cool. Yep. That makes a lot of sense. Is there data on what, like the difference in maybe like economic productivity from a city that is fiber equipped versus like non-fiber equipped? Absolutely. So I don't, obviously I can't quote it right now because I don't have it in front of me, but the, the, the dynamics are, 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 very, are significant. Right. And it also allows people to either go home, like, like, let's say you were, you grew up in a rural part of the country and you wanted to return home to take care of your family or to live a different life than what you would live in, in a big city. Right. Uh, technology and connectivity has prevented that from happening until recently. Right. So, um, or if you, you've been through the pandemic, you're like, I'm not doing, I'm not, I'm not doing that again. I want to go out and I want to live on you know, 80 acres and, and, you know, raise llamas. Um, but I still also want to, you know, be a network engineer. Right. Um, you know, we have some, I have some friends who have done that specific thing. Um, yeah, they can do that. That's cool. No, I mean, this is just like my personal anecdote, but I have fiber and I, we live on two acres, basically like in West of Nashville and my internet's better than it was 10 years ago. Like I went to BU in Boston living on, in the dorm. That I think was I don't know we had like a T one I think for the door oh for sure and I'm like yeah. this is way <laughs> yeah for sure it's and they're doing a great job the fiber providers and the rural providers who are out there are doing a fantastic job of of making it possible for people to choose different lives than you know maybe the way they they grew up right that's a really neat story I mean there was a big emphasis on fiber connectivity in Chattanooga which is a eastern town as you know in Tennessee um, I think there's there was one sprint like this in Kansas City. To what extent do you think that that creates like an incentive for people to move to a given city for remote work if there is fiber there? Depends on the demographic, right? So if you're a, a younger demographic, I think that that's the first you ask, right? Do you know is there is there internet there? Do I have reliable access to internet? Uh, if the answer is no, um, that's that's almost a deal breaker, right, for you. Right. It could be the most beautiful, you know, perfect piece of land or wherever. Right. And, but if there's no internet, you know, might as well be cut off from the grid. Totally. I have like a controversial opinion. I think like broadband access is more important than public transportation. Like it's, I completely agree. Like, yeah. Cause you can just like, you have everything, you know, and maybe you drive an hour to get some food, but that's it. Well, and I think that, you know, I have to be, I have to be, I have to temper that response, right? With, um, obviously I'm in the connectivity business, so I, I'm biased from that perspective, right? And, you know, obviously not everybody uses connectivity as, as, you know, as regularly as people like you and I, right? So some certain people have to get to work, right? Because that's, you know, that's, they, they're not sitting in front of a computer all day, they're doing something else, right? So, um, I think that's, you know, at least for, for our demographic and I think for the, the, the people who are, um, digital workers, I, I think, yeah, I think it is, is certainly, um, uh, as, as important as, as public, you know, 
as, as public transportation, which, by the way, is not available in rural communities for the most part. Yeah, actually, you know, I think maybe one or two weeks ago, we interviewed a guy. He runs a company that basically builds like smart valves. If you're trying to water an orchard or like a vineyard, um, yep. basically they drive around on ATVs and turn the valves on and off to like maintain, you know, um, hydrated plants. Uh, and so I, this is all linked now via internet and Bluetooth. IoT, and so I feel yeah. like even, yeah, yeah. And so it's like, even there, you know, that guy is like the farthest thing from like an informational. I mean, I guess he has a tech company, but still it's like, he's dealing with folks that are using his tools to kind of go and build their farms, you know? And so even there, it seems very important, you know, extremely important for that thing to work. Certainly. Yeah. I think that that's, that's a huge driver for, um, for a lot of, a, a, a lot of people in rural communities is supporting the, the, the businesses that are, that are supporting them. Right. So when you're in, you know, rural Nebraska and, and you're, you're on a thousand acres and you're, you're farming corn or you're farming wheat or, um, you know, and, and you've got these combines that are driving themselves based upon GPS and, and, you know, IOT mappings for what they're supposed to be doing and crop dusting and all of that stuff. All of it is now, well, a lot of it is now kind of driven by, um, you know, by, by smart applications. Right. Um, and that some of them rely on constant strings of connectivity and other ones don't. Right. So it's, uh, kind of trying to juggle that, but in, in building that out to support the businesses, the residents of those communities get to take advantage of that. So I think that's, that's sort of the pull. I think that was, it's, it's feasible to, um, to get, you know, get connectivity in places that you would normally not be able to get. So how did you get interested in connectivity? Like, did you study this in school or? No, not at all. I studied finance. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, I, I, you know, for my first premise is, you know, how am I going to make money? Right. And uh, it's, uh, you know, I kind of got dragged into connectivity, studied finance, but I was always a software guy. And, and, um, my first project was in, uh, was in Honduras and, uh, I was, I was hired as a consultant at school to essentially solve an issue and I was able to solve the issue and, and, um, you know, I'm 22 years old, right. Just, you know, very, you know, I don't know anything. Right. But, um, I said, I can do it. Right. Um, and, uh, and managed to kind of pull it off. So it's, uh, um, then that the, the rest was history at that point I was hooked. Um, you know, I was hooked for, um, the international aspect of it, um, which I always wanted to travel growing up and, um, and I was hooked by, um, the need and the technology and meeting all, you know, interesting people. And yeah, it was a good fit for me. That's cool. Yeah. It like fulfills a lot of needs and yeah. the subject matter is super interesting. And there's like a huge wide open opportunity there. That's really cool. If you had to, like when you were, let's say 18, what did you think you would be doing after school? Well, I, I, I semi founded my first company at 16 and it was, it was doing, you know, IT and web development. So I thought that I was going to somewhat be in that space. Gotcha. But at the end of the day, you know, I fly airplanes too for fun. So I was like, well, maybe I'll do mediation or maybe I'll do, you know, something else. And, and, um, uh, but you know, I kind of just got sucked back in. <laughs> how, how long have you been like an aviator? Uh, so when I was at, uh, when I was in Oklahoma, um, I took it 
like his first semester of my sophomore year, I, there was an elected to, to, you could fulfill one of your electives by being, uh, you know, by, by taking pilots, you know, your pilots license, getting your pilots license. So I, uh, gotcha. I kind of killed two birds with one stone on that and got hooked immediately from, from that point forward. And I've owned a few airplanes or over the years. I have the addiction. It's, it, it, you know, hopefully it won't be the death of me, but, uh, I just, yeah, aviation's fantastic. No, I feel like you have a great personality disposition, like cool under pressure, like four flying planes, you know? Well, you're a CEO. You kind of have so, to be able to uh, <laughs> deal with guns when it's against sure. your heads. But, uh, yeah. For sure. Yeah, been maneuver. Yeah, totally. I wear this thing called like a whoop strap that like measures like your stress levels. And I like to see like different, like to see how my cognitive function is under different levels of stress. What So what do like the in crowd of pilots, do you, do you call yourselves pilots or aviators or interchangeable? I, I mean, if you if you walked in and you were like, "Well, I'm a general aviator," uh, I think that they would <laughs> they would be immediately removed from from the conversation at that point, right? So, uh, you know, the, the navy <laughs> naval aviator, you know, term works on TV, but not not necessarily in the real world. We're just pilots, right? So, uh, and oh. they you pilots are you talk about the craziest bunch of folks too. Um, you would never expect to get together and um you know all walks of life and all matter you know of stories so um yeah it's a it's a very eclectic group of individuals totally i took a few lessons did you okay flew a little cessna you know for like your training course and stuff it's just it's one of these things where like my interest space doesn't map with the available time i have in my life unfortunately but it's it's a thing on my that i want to pursue for sure um it's fun and it's like i mean it it teaches you a lot about yourself and like you're forced to be extremely thorough cool under pressure it's really cool and it's just like insane you're like how is this thing in the air right now like what is happening so, like i'm flying wow and it's yeah it's <laughs> it's it's kind of anticlimactic when you actually take off for the first time yourself because you're like i'm, I'm literally flying right it doesn't feel any different it's just that i'm flying so, um, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's, but it's a unique experience that, that, um, you know, it, it's hard to describe. Yeah. Oh my God. I remember the the first time that like, you know, that the instructor is like letting you fly. I mean, this is probably a long time ago for you, like many hours ago, but like, I remember I was like, what, you're seriously just letting me do this. He's like, yeah, it's fine. I'm like, what's wrong with you? Like, do you, okay, I'm going to try to do this. And I was like, it was it blew me away uh it's, it is it's a really you know, i cool liken it to I, it's funny i liken it to when my my first son was born and you know we took we took him home and i'm like so <laughs> so i have to like i'm taking him home now like i have like you know what do i do now right so it's it's uh yeah i had had a similar <laughs> it's the only thing i could say that it's somewhat likening to especially when you first solo an airplane it's like i shouldn't be doing this yeah. like this is dangerous right so <laughs> that's that's so true i know i know it's crazy there's like what's your view on like using um like do you guys take family trips flying or anything like that or is so it more so just recreate okay yeah we cool. used to it's for me it's been a great business tool and um and i met some you know i i met some some, some really neat people who have kind of helped me advance the company. Um, a lot of them are entrepreneurs, recovering entrepreneurs that also fly. So, you know, my kids love aviation too. Um, my wife 
it's I guess to some degree will forever war- be warming to aviation. Um, probably never, no, uh, never super excited about getting her pilot's license, but um, but you know, I'm happy to let me fly around. I was talking to a friend about this. It's crazy how much like easier it is to forge business relationships when you talk about things other than work. It is it's just funny, and it's true. But at the end of the day, I mean, I think that, see, I love business and I've always, you know, done business. And I think there's obviously a lot to talk about from, from that perspective and war stories and whatnot. But at the end of the day, you know, um, your hobbies is kind of to some degree why you do a lot of this stuff, right? Um, you know, obviously not to starve, um, to, to, to build, you know, hopefully something for your, you know, your kids can, you know leverage at some point in the future either leverage an exit or leverage the business that exists already they feed other things feeds other stuff right yeah totally i find that entrepreneurs tend to be like generally obsessive people and i think like you just are going to naturally have interests outside of work you know uh that you're excited about you're passionate about that you're good at as well sure yeah absolutely I heard a story about, I think it was the Uber founder. He was like top five in the world at like Wii Tennis or something oh, <laughs> like yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. That's really funny. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's, a, there's definitely a, a bit of, you know, for the good CEOs, there's a bit of, of competitiveness that goes along with it. Um, you know, I think, you know, probably that needs to be tempered maybe a little more um but in general it's yeah that, an obsessive bunch okay so if you had to go back and maybe give your former self a couple bits of wisdom when you first started 46 labs what would they be raise more money <laughs> that's the that's so, not, yeah i mean yep. i think at the end of the day we you know we're a bootstrap organization uh, you know that the sacrifices that my family made to to, to start this um we're we're real right and that's um and the childhood that that you somewhat sacrifice and your kids are real right so and that goes back to kind of the entrepreneurs well not in the traditional sense but in the sense that you really have to understand that it is a it is not a hobby like running a company having folks who rely on you for for their paychecks having customers that rely on you to operate you know, to do what they do, right? To deliver your services so they can deliver their services is, um, it, it's it's a level of responsibility that not everybody fully, re- you know, understands when they sign up for this thing, right? So I'm a serial entrepreneur, so I've kind of known it from the beginning, but even this one, four or five inches later, um, is, uh, you know, I, I'd say, you know, understand what you're getting into, understand it's going to take longer than you think it's going to take and it's going to cost a lot more than you anticipate it's going to cost. And if you're cool with that, great, go for it. You know, you know, have, have fun. Right. Um, and, uh, yeah, that, that would be one or two things, I guess. And the other would be just don't take it so seriously. Mm, Yes. Sure. You know, connecting businesses to the world, um, is super important for me. Right. But at the end of the day, um, you know, it's, Yeah, it's going to happen or it's not going to happen, right? And, um, and you know, I, I obsess about this stuff, right? Um, you know, we, we want to make sure everybody is, is, um, is able to connect and do and, and, and do it and, and, and save time and, 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 uh, 
but you know taking it and understanding it and encapsulating it as 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 a problem to solve versus uh, an identity um is you learn that late i think and as an entrepreneur um and it for what it worked for what it's worth it makes you a better entrepreneur if you choose your customers better right you're not you're not encumbered by um you know the emotional aspects that go with with being a you know with managing a business like and i think actually things go better when you don't take it as they seriously do. Yeah, when you don't, when you, yeah, that's. It, it, I think that's true, um, and maybe many aspects of life probably exist that way, right? So, oh man, oh totally. I mean, when we first started the company, like I was so obsessed with like every small thing because you're like, if I don't do this, it's gonna kill us, you know. Yeah. And then you know, you're like, if we don't close this customer, we're dead. And I, obviously, I'm using stronger language, like sure. when I'm actually saying that. But oh, like, yeah, of course, yeah, you know, uh, yeah, yeah. And then, and then, like over time, you're like, does that really matter? No, nah, I think it really doesn't. Like, it's fine. Yeah. Don't worry about it. It's real. Kind of I mean, it's true, right? It's not. You're not like overstating yeah. the situation, right? But it. But you know, um, it. Yeah, it's it's perspective's everything here. So, yeah, totally. So bootstrap company okay so are you thinking that you guys are going to just like fund the company out of profits basically indefinitely or do you sort of see it raise on your horizon yeah that's a good question so we've done a we've done a venture debt raise um last year the first you know meaningful raise um you know from a from an institution um and that really was to to kind of jumpstart our growth which it's done then we'll probably look at at maybe doing a, a our first proper, I wouldn't even call it a series, you know, saying a series A when you're 10 years old is kind of like silly, right? But, uh, um, yeah, but, but we're raising some growth capital. Yeah. That's, that's cool. Yeah. Somebody once told me like a long time ago, I was like, treat every point of equity like it's worth 10 million bucks. And I see the virtue in, in that, you know, um, you do. And it's painful. It's, Gosh, it's, it's painful to do that too. Right. So, um, yeah. and the early equity is, yeah. it's, it's the most expensive. So, Yes, that's true. Yeah, we. I mean, so we we started. I mean, we founded the company January twenty eighth, twenty thirteen, and we basically grew the company out of revenue until twenty nineteen. We took on like a very small safe note round um, from folks that sold their companies, and then just last August we raised our first institutional round. Which I mean, we called it a Series A, but like you said. We've been operating for like nine years at that point. Sure. And it's like, well, it's technically a series A. Like when you file yeah. it with the SEC, it's like a series yeah. A. That's what they call it. But it's just like, it's funny. It's just, you're just like, I don't know. Uh, and you feel kind of sheep. Yeah, so. yeah. Trust me. Yeah. I, I, I understand yeah. that, right? Because it doesn't fit the traditional model. And your, 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 your gross didn't fit that either, right? So it's, um, and I think that's the other thing you were talking about your, your, um, going back to the things you would tell your your you know prior self there there if you look online and if you read and if you watch podcasts it seems like there's a recipe that everybody's running right and um yes and the reality is there's not there's not a recipe it's there's whatever you've managed to kind of put together and make work is the recipe right and um because if you, if, you, if you pay attention to the other noise, you'll think, I'm so far behind. I've done this wrong entirely. Why did I ever decide to take this path, right? Yeah, run your own race. 
and it's okay, right? That's so valuable, and it's so true. Because, you yeah. know, like you'll, at least I will cycle on, like, how does this fit into the broader narrative around raising money, and, like, how do we position sure. this, you yeah. know? Right? It's like you're incentivized to do that, but, like, you're right. It's like, it's kind of a waste. You just got to focus on your own thing. Roger your own Yeah, ride, you're thinking your about, you know, when you're running a business, it's hard to think about enterprise value and running and, and serving your customers at the same time, right? So it's, yeah, uh, yeah it's, it, it is, um, but you're taught to think that, right? And I think the other thing I'd say is, is that it's okay to question what other people are telling you, right? Because most of, some of them are full of complete crap. So, um, and oh. I, yeah, that's question everything. Oh, totally true. I mean, there there have been in our space in particular, there have been a couple of companies that raised like tremendous B rounds, like huge B rounds, like twelve months after their A, and then like you don't hear about them for like five years, and they're like they sold yeah. to such and such company and not, and you're like, what? Like, how did that? How did they just burn thirty million dollars or yeah. something? Like, where did it go? So you're right. It's like they may have over-indexed on EV and then sort of turned into nothing. And their and their backers force yeah. them to do that in many cases too, right? So um, that's that's the other thing yeah. that you know is really kind of tough to to understand is that you know there's expectations that come with that money. It's 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 funny. Like everybody knows that's what's happening, and so like at least I have to be. I feel like I have to be so judicious with every dollar, whether or not we're venture back, and treat it the same. I treat it with the same sort of sanctity. You know, as if there were ten grand in the company coffers, <laughs> like or something. You know, yeah, um, no, and so, I think yeah, that that's you know, being a good steward is you know that that's uh that that's it's understated uh, or it has been lately. It's actually not been understated. Folks have had to figure out how to do more with less, right? Um, that's that that there's been a reckoning, I think, and I think that will continue as people burn through. Um, you know, more of what their races look like, but it's just good practice. And it's something, that's something they don't teach you in school, right? Um, you know, you can, they, they just don't, right? Um, and being able to assess what you need when you need it, right? And um, yeah, be very judicious with every dollar. What are some like things or practices that you do to try to maintain your own kind of, like, let's say internally generated viewpoints versus like, conforming to the broader conversation like do you have any sort of centering practices or do you turn off social <laughs> I have a media? Wife. yeah so um yeah <laughs> and uh you know she's she's got to live this roller coaster with me so you know while i'd like to say that i have you know i have a lot of internal discipline in this i i am married and uh and you know my wife is is, is very vocal with how she she feels about things which i think is is certainly a gift and um yeah, I mean, going back to, to, to not taking yourself too seriously, I think that has a lot to do with this. It's just kind of, you know, stepping back and saying, am I really being crazy here? Am I am I thinking about this mm-hmm. the right way? Am I, you know, just step back, right? Or go to nature and figure it out, you know, on a run or on a hike or whatever, right? So, well, thank you, Trevor. Really appreciate your time and awesome conversation. Thanks for listening to the Frontier Podcast powered by Gunt.io. We drop two episodes per week. So if you like this episode, be sure to subscribe on your platform of choice and come hang out with us again next week and bring all your internet friends. If you have questions or recommendations, just shoot us a Twitter DM at the Frontier Pod and we'll see you next week.
I'm gonna hit record because I think this type of like stuff actually helps. It helps just kind of humanize us. We're not like faceless corporate overlords. You don't know me very well yet. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Frontier Podcast produced by Gun.io. We're the only freelancing platform where engineers actually go to hire other engineers. If you want to learn more about how to hire or freelance with us, head over to gun.io and get in touch. Let us know you heard the podcast and we'll pay for your first 10 hours with a kick-ass engineer.